Good morning. Good morning. My name is Neil Grogan. I'm the Children's Ministry Director here at Grace Bible Church. It's a privilege today to get to talk to you guys. Thank you for letting me out of my cage in the back building and join you guys today. One of the pivotal or foundational pieces of our service each week is to gather around the Word of God, to hear it, and to apply it to our lives. So we're going to spend the next 30 to 40 minutes doing just that. Today we're starting the third and final uh, week or sermon on our series, The Mission of the Church. Uh, as we look at the mission of the church, we see it laid out in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which says, if y'all can say it with me, let's do it together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you until the very end of the age. That's the great commission. That's the mission that Jesus has given us as, as the church, the big C church. But in our local context, at Grace Bible Church, we, we look at that great commission, and we see it play out in kind of three ways. And so the last three weeks, we've, we've spent time looking at those, each of those ways. The first one was introducing people to the person and work of Christ. Second week, last week, Dave spoke on establishing them in their faith. And this week, we're going to talk about equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We're going to focus more on, though, doing the work of ministry. All of us, what that looks like. And it begins with understanding that we're all called to ministry, which is the title of our sermon today today that we're called to ministry. We're going to be out of 1 Peter, so why don't you all go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. Within this letter, we see its universal relevance due to its presentation of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived in the context of an unbelieving society. So what that, what that means is that 1 Peter really tells us how to live out our faith, how to do the work of ministry in a world that does not believe, that rejects the gospel. So how do we as believers do this work, introduce people to Christ, establish them in, our, in their faith, and do the work of ministry well in the context of an unbelieving society? So this this letter is extremely appropriate for, for us to dive in and look at how we're, how we're supposed to do this life, this Christian life. We're going to read today 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. If you're using the Bibles on the pews in front of you, it'll be on page 1015, 1015. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Let's, let's start. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful that we currently in our country have the freedom to hear your word, to worship, and everyone knows what we're doing on Sunday. God, I pray that you would cover us, that that would never be taken away from us. But Lord, we, I pray that our hearts would be prepared today for the work of ministry that comes tomorrow, that comes when we leave this place. God, let us not be a people who just hear the word, but let us be a people who, who do it who live it out. Let us proclaim the gospel. Let us, let us do good. God, let us be disciples who make disciples. We love you, Lord. Please, Lord, let my words glorify you today. See your name I pray. Amen. So in this text, there are three big callings going on. I see first, God calling a people to a new identity for a purpose, for a reason. Next, I see a call to proclaim his good news and a call to do good. First believer, you are called to a new identity. This is who God says that you are in Christ. So let's reread some of verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, This verse begins first, or after Peter first reflects back on the shame that comes upon those who utterly reject Christ. And then he shifts his focus, he shifts his thought by saying the word, but, but you are. You are no longer someone who rejects Christ. Now you are this. He calls us to a new identity. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece for us to stand in, understanding that we are no longer put to shame, but we receive honor with Christ, who is our King. We stand as a people who no longer reject, but as a people who have been made new. I asked, I called some of my friends as I was getting ready this week, um, some of my non-Christian friends, specifically, and I asked, like, when, if I say, what's your identity, what, what would be some of the things you would, you would say your identity is? And some of the things they said was, well, my job, of course. My job uh, gives me my purpose. Um, they also said my family, uh, my friends, or my circle, who I run with, you know, um, my race, or my ideology, my creed, Right? Those are the things that define who I am. I thought that was really interesting because as I, as I looked at this text, I saw all those things. Yeah, they're not inherently wrong. Those are things, those are attributes that make you who you are. But they're second tier when you are in Christ. This new identity we're called to is first tier. Those things do not define your purpose. They are places that God has given you to exercise your purpose. And so Peter rightfully draws our attention in verse 9 to who you are. What is the first tier? 
Those things are second tier. What is the first tier? What, who are you? And so he gives us four phrases to describe who we are in Christ. First, he says we are a chosen race. Meaning those who believe in Jesus Christ, whoever they may be, constitute a new race of those who have been born again into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believer, you are chosen to be a people no matter what people you have come from. This is a new lineage. This is first tier. And how controversial is that statement in our day and age? In our day and age, we, we separate, and for at least American history, we have always looked at ourselves first as our ethnic background, our cultural background. That's who I am, then I'm a Christian, and this trumps who you are, whether or not you're a Christian or not. That is not the gospel principles that we see in the, in the Word of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you, believer, are a chosen race. You are a new creation. You have been born again into a new lineage. That's first tier. Whatever color you are, it doesn't matter. First, you are a Christian. You are a brother and sister in Christ. Then, you are these other things. For you to exercise that purpose. For you to proclaim the good news with people like you. And people not like you. The other aspect of being a chosen race, I think it's super practical. It frees us up to do the work of ministry without thinking about all the cultural baggage I'm carrying with me. Like me, a white man, does not have to be fearful of sharing the gospel with a black man at all. Because when that man, hopefully, comes to know Jesus, we are in the same race now. We are of the same people now. Our lineage traces back to Jesus first. And then the separation happens according to the world. So I can proclaim the gospel in any setting. It doesn't matter. We have white missionaries in the Middle East right now who are hated. And they are in there week in and week out proclaiming the good news and making relationships. It's a beautiful thing. However controversial that may be in our day and age to say, how much more controversial was it when this letter was written to a people, to believers who were being slaughtered, who were suffering? But the beautiful picture that we see in Acts is that the people of God were unified by what Christ did, and they did not cease in doing the work of ministry. They did not cease in making disciples. And so, if you would, if you do your good church history, right, what we see here, say that this is the church, guys, because I'm a children's minister, I got to do things with my hands. <laughs> so, this is the church, the early church. These are believers, and they're being slaughtered, and they are suffering for their faith, and God has chosen them to be unified and to do the work of ministry. And in their suffering, they continue to make disciples. And the church grows and grows and grows because they understand who they are in Jesus. 
do we understand who we are in Christ? The second phrase that Peter uses is a royal priesthood. We Christians are called a priesthood, meaning that we are sanctified by the blood of Jesus and set apart for the work of ministry to do God's will in the world. The modifying word attached to priesthood is the word royal. Why would, they, why would Peter appoint the word royal to the priesthood that we're called to? Here's another separating factor of first-tier things. Because God is our king. That's who we swear our allegiance to first and foremost. I was a Marine. I am a born American. I'm super proud that I'm an American. Check it out. I got American flag socks on. <laughs> I, am, I am extremely proud of where I come from and what I've done. But that's second tier. My allegiance is to God first. We believers are a royal priesthood who should see that. We serve the king of the universe first. And that is where our allegiance first lies with. The third phrase given is a holy nation. We are set apart to be a people who walk in obedience to God's word and his will. So, Peter here is looking back on Exodus 19 and Psalms 118 and, and Isaiah, I think, 48. And he's showing how the attributes given to, given to Israel here apply to the people of God made new in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. So he's calling back. He's searching back. These are who you are. This is who you are, people of God. Don't be mistaken. This is the honor that's due to you as believers. You're to be a holy nation, meaning we as a Christian group are unified under the banner of Christ for the rest of the world to look at and to see that's the people of God through their obedience. It's unmistakable. Those are the people of God. And the fourth and last phrase he attributes to the people of God is a people for his own possession. Hear me. You are God's. You are loved. You are treasured by the king of the universe. You are his. And you can know what God calls his people to do is for your good and his glory. You don't have to ever doubt that because you are his possession. It's a beautiful thing to be owned by, by the creator of all things, to be his chosen people. We, or the purpose of God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, is to make a special people who make known what God has done by displaying his power, by displaying his grace, by displaying his mercy. We are to proclaim his excellencies to the world. Or, and how we have it written 
in our Constitution to introduce others to the person and work of Christ. We are called to proclaim. Let's go back to the text. Let's finish verse 9 and read verse 10 also. Why? You are a people of his own possession, right? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why would we proclaim his excellencies? Because he has called you his people, and he has given his mercy to you. That's why we proclaim his mercies. Like, do you remember the first time you confessed your sins and asked God to forgive you? Do you remember that? What a weight that was lifted off of you. Have you ever been there with someone else as they'd done it for the first time? I get that opportunity, or I have this year, it's happened a lot for some reason. I've gotten to see that first confession about 10 times this year. And the beautiful thing is every single interaction has been the same. Here's how it went down. I proclaimed the good news to these people. And they heard it, and they received it. And they realized the way of their sins. And then what do we do? We pray. We prayed. And that person prays this broken prayer, sometimes the first time they've ever prayed in their life. And they lay it out before God, before the cross. This is who I was. This is what I've done. Jesus, forgive me. And when they say amen, there's a physiological change to the transformation of their heart. Like, you see it on their body. They bring their head up, and they just... Like, you know when you're carrying... Like, we have dads here. Raise your hand if you're a dad. Okay, so you know how y'all go on those awesome family trips that your wife tells you you're supposed to do? Like, you know when you're carrying the luggage, you know, and you're running into the hotel or whatever... And then you drop the bags. How does your shoulders feel? Everybody sigh with me. <sighs> right, that's how we feel. Wives, if you didn't know. That's how we feel. Or for a woman, when you put down that big 29-month-old child that you're carrying around for some weird reason, who knows how to walk. Like, <laughs> you put them down. And, you, and what do you do? <sighs> right, right. This is the kind of physical reaction we have to confessing our sins. This is the physiological reaction we have to receiving mercy from the God of the universe, the Most High God. And we forget that. We forget it. We forget what it's like to receive mercy. That's why each week in our church we do a time of confession so that we would not forget that we are forgiven, that we would not forget that we're to walk out the gospel and continue to be forgiven for our sins, continue to repent so that we can live a Christian life that brings glory to God. I'm reminded of the story of Zacchaeus. 
Maybe you guys know that story. If you did Sunday school in the 80s and 90s, um, that's as far back as I can go. So if you know before that, then cool. Um, but it's found in Luke 19, chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. And kind of here's how the story goes. There's this tax collector named Zacchaeus, and this dude's a thief, all right? And he hears about this, the, the buzz in the community about this guy named Jesus. He says, I got to see this guy. So Zacchaeus runs out. He wants to go see Jesus. And he, he realizes that he'll never be able to see Jesus over the crowd because he was a wee little man. Midget man. Okay. <laughs> he was a wee little man. That's what the felt board Sunday school teacher taught, taught me. All right. He was a wee little man. So the Bible says small in stature. Okay. So he climbed up a sycamore tree and to look down and to see Jesus as he came through. And Jesus comes through the town and sees Zacchaeus. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from there. I'm staying at your house tonight. What? So Zacchaeus, he's like, okay. And he comes down and they go to his house and everybody's grumbling, right? Why would Jesus go eat and stay at this dude's house? And Zacchaeus, while Jesus is at his house, receives the mercy of Christ. The Bible says salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus gets introduced to who Christ is. This is the picture Jesus gives us. And Zacchaeus' response naturally is, Lord, I will return everything. And if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back fourfold. Can you think about that conversation? Zacchaeus walks up to the door, you know. Hello, who is it? Zacchaeus. What, what does he want? You steal all my money again? Open the door. What do you want, Zacchaeus? He's got like bags of money. He's like, here you go. <laughs> what would that person say? It's a W word. W why, right. They would go, why are you giving me this? It's way too much. First of all, first of all, Zacchaeus reached back and he hurts by giving all this extra, like that goes into his pockets, right? Like he feels that. He doesn't just return what he stole. He, he reaches back and gathers stuff from his own income and gives it. Why would you give me this? What, what would Zacchaeus' response be? Because I've met the Messiah. And he would proclaim the excellencies of God to this person through his obedience Believer, you are called to proclaim the excellencies of God. But what exactly are we to proclaim? In verse 10 of Luke 19, Jesus gives us the answer that he has come to seek and save the lost. We proclaim the gospel, the excellencies of God, his mercy. We introduce others to the person and work of Christ. Making disciples, which is the work of ministry, Shortened, making disciples begins with gospel proclamation. You, there's no way around it. It begins with gospel proclamation. 
That's what we're to proclaim. Jesus not only illustrates for us what to proclaim, but we are also to follow his example. We are called to do good. Let's read verse 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We Christians are aliens in a foreign land. We are a people set apart, a royal priesthood. And Peter is pointing out here that abstaining from sin or walking in obedience puts legitimacy to the message that we proclaim. It shows the world what our faith is and who it's in through how we live. Here, let me give you a picture. Six or seven years ago, I was still in the Marine Corps and I was riding in the car with my really good friends, Kyle. Like this, this guy was my point, uh, was the point man on our team in Afghanistan. So we were like super close. Like we had spent countless hours together. I knew everything about this guy. And he knew everything about me, except one thing. We had never talked about whether we believed in God or not. I don't know how we missed that, but it's true. So Kyle says to me something like, I don't think there is a God. There is no God. I don't believe in anything, you know, work hard, that's enough. And I said to him, Kyle, I believe that there is a God. I believe Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose again from the grave. And when we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe in our heart, the Bible says that we'll be saved. We repent and follow him. And you know what he said to me? Check it out. Would you... First of all, would you say that's gospel proclamation to Kyle? I think so. I gave a gospel, I proclaimed the gospel to Kyle. And here's what his return fire was. That's cool, bro. But what you just said does not match how you live. So I'm good. Oh, gosh. I look back and oh, how I wish I could do things differently. Like, that wrenches me apart that I squandered that based on the way I lived my life at the time. That may be some of you in this room. We're called to do good because it puts legitimacy to what we say. In fact, y'all, what the Word is telling us, really, is that it's better to suffer than to sin. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's better to suffer than to sin. Rejecting the world and your sinful desires, that's hard. Because everywhere you turn around, there's something calling you out to, to live according to the world. The Bible says, deny yourself. Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. 
That's not a foam cross. That is a torture device, is what he's referring to. Pick it up and follow me. Suffer. Don't sin. Abstain. Because the passions of your flesh, they're trying to eat you up. They're trying to destroy you. So suffer. It's better. I think about like Charles Spurgeon. If it, has anyone ever heard of that guy before? He's like a super p- preacher or whatever. If Superman, like, if there was a superhero preacher, that would be Charles Spurgeon, right? Charles Spurgeon was, his whole life, dealt with depression. Or melancholy, as they called it back then. His whole life. In fact, his wife was bed-stricken. Like, Spurgeon had to, like, change his wife, like, clean her, do all that stuff. I wonder if he ever thought, because I've heard this from people before, God wants me to be happy, so I'm leaving my wife, or I'm, 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 I'm going to take the easy way. God wants me to be happy. Best life now stuff. <laughs> no, he does not. God wants you to be obedient. He wants you to do his will. He wants you to be a set-apart people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. That's what he calls you to do for his own possession. Not press the easy button, but do the hard work of ministry. It would have been easy for Spurgeon to say, nope, easy way. But you know what he did? He took the hard way. He remained obedient. He dealt with his depression. He preached every week to thousands of people in London, and there was a great revival because of it. He led countless to the Lord by being obedient and proclaiming the good news. That's who we're to be. It's not just for leadership. He doesn't say, Peter doesn't say, leaders, you are a chosen race. No, he says, you, Christian, this is who you are. Don't forget. Proclaim the good news, proclaim his excellencies, and do good. So, let me ask you. How do you act in the marketplace? How do you act at work? How do you act in your neighborhood? Or around your friends? Or around your family? Does the words that come out of your mouth match up with the way, with what your behaviors are? James 1.22 says to be a doer of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, when we know who we are and we're proclaiming the good news and we are abstaining from sin, those good deeds motivated by the reality of what Jesus has done for you, check it out. It shakes the world. It flips it on its head. And people don't know what to do with that. I can't call you some crazy name Christian who has mental illness because you are... 
what you do, I mean, it's so good. Like, you're, you're kind and you're loving and the fruit of the spirits are emulated through your life. You're gentle. You're, you have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All those things come out of you because you know who you are. And you've made a decision to live in that manner. To be a royal priesthood. It flips the world on its head. Here, I'll give you an example before we close. A couple years ago, some of our missionaries, the Vanderwerfs, came home on leave for a time. Might have been a year ago, I can't remember. But they were here for an extended period of time, so I asked them, hey, would y'all be interested um, in teaching one of our cross-culture ministry classes at UMHB, where I used to go to school? Sure. You know, we okayed it with the professor. They came, they spoke, and they told this story. And it, man, it hit me in my heart. It's a story about an imam. An imam is like a religious leader in the Muslim community. Okay? So here's my experience with imams. When I was in Afghanistan, there was a mosque next to our patrol base. And every day, that imam ordered the people of the village to kill us. So that's my experience with imams up to this point. So I felt some kind of way about that specific group um, of imams. And I'm sitting in this class, and they tell the story of this imam in Syria. If you guys don't know, there's, there's a war going on in Syria, and it has been for a few years. And this imam, alongside thousands of other Syrians, was displaced became refugees in search of a home because they can't live where they are, right? It's unsafe. Can't have a school, can't have, you know, no, no bazaar, no place to get stuff for market, from the market. There's no, there's no house anymore. It's been destroyed. The ISIS or the soldiers of, I can't remember his name, the Syrian leader, They've overtaken everything. I have to go. I have no other options. Fight, die, or leave. So this imam left. And he went towards Turkey. And when he got to Turkey, he told the team that I guess the Vanderwerfs were working with, he tells them this story about Christians, what he knew about Christians now. Here's what he said. Each stop along the way to here. I have been fed by Christians. I have been clothed by Christians. I have been served by Christians. I have been loved by Christians. Each time I've stopped, these were the people who met me, their enemy. And when he got to Turkey, he became a believer by the work of ministry that we are called to do. We are called to make disciples, to be disciples who make disciples. The people of God are aliens in this world, but God calls us to, in his name, affect the world by making disciples. So the one sentence for the 
for the sermon is this. The work of ministry is not about programs or cleverness or creativity. It is disciples making disciples by proclaiming the gospel and living it out. That's what we're to do as the people of God. Let me define the terms of a disciple real quick. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and rose again from the grave on the third day, and you have asked him to forgive you and have repented of your sins, you are a disciple. There's no waiting period for you now. Jesus commands you to go make disciples now, disciple. That's your purpose. Remember the second tier stuff we talked about? Job, family, friends, uh, ideas, color, creed. Go exercise your purpose in those places. Go show the world who you are. Proclaim the good news and love others well. Do the work of ministry. Establish them in their faith. Introduce them to Jesus. Establish them in their faith and do the work in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for calling us your people, for setting us apart as your possession to do the work that the world needs. That our family member who's lost, they need you. And you call us to do that work to be the vehicle of the gospel. Our friends, our co-workers, our, the people who hate us, God, you call us to do work in their lives, to love them well, to do good, so that they would glorify you. God, you call us to hard things that we're just not equipped for but we trust that you will equip us for whatever good work you have called us to. Lord, we love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.